we will have some extras up here next Sunday, and uh, you can always go online and get get a copy. We are making these available online. They're not up-to-date posted yet, but uh, we if you want one immediately, then give me a uh, email and I'll send it to you in that way. We are studying the prophet Isaiah, and this is our fifth lesson on that prophet. And instead of going chapter by chapter, we are, are looking in a panoramic view of that prophet because there's 66 chapters and there's no way we could cover that in a quarter's time. But we are, are making progress and today we'll be talking about the servant that is uh, mentioned by Isaiah repeatedly in his prophecy. A uh, number of you may be visiting because of the holidays, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, earlier, you know, it was folks were saying, "Well, we're still we're not over it yet. We still have have some more to go." So uh, that reminds me of a fellow one time. He was talking to somebody about he let his dog out, and he hadn't seen him. He ran away, and the old man replied, yeah, I know what you mean. I let my belt out at Thanksgiving and it hasn't come back yet. So, so George, that may be our situation. <laughs> but we're glad that you're here. Let me welcome you to the Dalreda Church of Christ. If you're visiting, we hope that uh, if in the area you will come back and join us. Uh, we'll reassemble for evening worship tonight at 5, and then we have midweek Bible study Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, and we would encourage you as a member of our community to come and join us in our study and understanding of the Word of God. Let's begin with prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Lord God Almighty, we are so thankful for the blessings that you have given us on this Lord's Day that allows us to be able to come together and to worship and study. Lord, we're thankful for the scriptures, for the process of inspiration that brought them to us, and for you watching over the transmission of those words so that we can hold in our hands your exact revelation and directions for us today. And we're thankful for the prophecy of Isaiah, and as we continue our study, we pray that our study of those words written centuries ago will help us to understand our position to you today and our role in your great scheme of redemption. Bless the church that assembles in this meeting place. Be with the elders that oversees her work. Be with each of us members that we will work together in harmony and unity and that we will all utilize the talents we have to cause the church to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, Isaiah's prophecy, as we point out here, is really a message of hope. And as you look at the culture and the world in Isaiah's time, you'll find that, that the citizens at that time struggled with fear and weariness and burdens. Uh, it was a traumatic time to be alive on earth. And that is very similar to our situation today. You look at all of the, the variables of civility surrounding Isaiah's nation, you find that politically and socially and militarily, spiritually, their hope was drowned in despair. 
they were at the bottom. There was no nowhere to go but up, but they couldn't see us. They were really just overwhelmed with despair. Isaiah was sent by God with the message that hope was coming. Despair can be answered and that the chaos and confusion of civility can be remedied by that law that the coming servant was going to announce. That servant is the one that would have eternal hope. And this is the message of Isaiah. Don't give up. Don't relent. Don't concede to this the, the chaos and confusion of this world. Uh, there is encouragement. There is a coming one. And today we'll identify that one as the coming servant. And if you're struggling today with hopelessness and despair and confusion and chaos, this lesson is for you. Because here is the answer to your problems, and not only your problems, but the entire world's problems. What, what was spoken of by Isaiah so many years ago is applicable to our situation and setting today. Isaiah focuses the message of hope on a single character, and he identifies this one as servant. The word servant occurs in Isaiah's prophecy uh, 13 times from chapters 41 to 48, significant repetition. Now, as you look at, at this, the message of the prophecy seemed almost unbelievable. You're living in a world that was dark, in, in a world that was depressing, a world that was full of despair, and yet here's hope? You've got to be kidding me, Isaiah. How can this be possible? And so it seemed an impossible message that one was coming and he was going to reverse the entire setting and the situation, the culture, and, and everything that was wrong, he was going to set back right. Unbelievable message. And yet, that is the good news of the gospel. And that's what Isaiah is going to tell us, that, that God has a plan to straighten everything up. He is, he is going to set again the proper priorities, and it's summarized in this concept of the servant. The, the servant would be one. And as we, we look at this concept, uh, you begin to think, this one person is going to dramatically change the world? And as you look, there the question comes up, how can one person change dramatically the world? Now, that seems almost impossible. But the significance of one being uh, a potent uh, factor of change is historically uh, valid. A, a number of examples, and I, I have a whole list of these I wish I could give you, but there have been numerous times where one person made the difference. And we'll see that the servant is like this. Isaiah announced that one person was coming and he was going to provide the greatest hope that you could ever expect. And the, the, the prophecy all the way from the beginning, starting actually in chapter 11, all the way through 66, talks about this uh, reorientation. Uh, this redirection of our thoughts and our hearts. The servant is identified in the New Testament by G as Jesus Christ. A uh, number of passages, Luke 4, 17 through 21, 
Matthew 12, 18 through 21. Matthew's account says Jesus withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all, warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out. He leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. And there's the word. Gentiles will, not only Israel or Judah, because at this point in, in history, Israel's already taken into Assyria. Now we're dealing with Judah, the southern kingdom. So Judah was hopeless. Not only would there be hope to Judah, but there was hope, he said, to the Gentiles. The prophecy of Isaiah has more to say about Jesus Christ than any other prophecy. In fact, the entire life, ministry, his past, his future aspects are all announced by, by Isaiah. And here's just a few of the significant points. And, and I wish we had time to talk about the uh, prophetic prophecies and the, the fulfillment. That's an amazing topic. It validates the fact that what you hold in your Bible is the Word of God. But look at these predicted prophecies about Jesus that Isaiah spoke. It spoke about His coming. It spoke about His virgin birth. It spoke about His proclamation of the good news, His sacrificial death, His powerful return. And it'll talk about the judgment in, in tremendously blunt terms. All of this is, is validated in the prophecy of Isaiah and helps us to understand the impact of Jesus Christ. Isaiah's words present Christ as the only legitimate means by which man can be reconciled and redeemed. Well, there's many. The Corinthians were told there's Lord's many, there's God's many. Paul says, but to us, there's one. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. Only this servant is the legitimate means by which redemption and reconciliation to God is possible. And the good news is that the ministry of this servant is the basis for our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. And this is what Isaiah was trying to tell us. In the next few lessons, we'll examine this, this servant in greater... There's four servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. And each one of these songs will speak about Jesus Christ. And, and probably the most familiar is Isaiah 53. It talks there about the suffering servant. And we'll, we'll talk about these four songs as we, we continue in the next few weeks. But as you look at the servant being introduced, the inspiration portrays the coming Christ little by little. In Isaiah 28, verses 10 through 13, it says, He says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here and a little there. Why, Why did God reveal it in, in slices? Why, why didn't He just give them the whole picture at one time? Well, because He said they would not listen. And so God says, little by little, little by little, I'm going to tell you this. It's kind of like a parent with a child. You know, parenting is a tremendously arduous, impossible, never-ending process, isn't it? I mean, it just doesn't stop. 
Uh, you'd think that it would, but it doesn't. Well, as a parent, you just can't give the whole thing at one time. The child's not going to accept it. So you, you teach them little by little. When they grasp that, then you can give them a little more. And then, lo and behold, one day it's all going to click together and they will say, wow, why didn't I see this before? Well, that's exactly what we see here in the servant being introduced. Little by little, bit by bit, God's revelation of this, this uh, servant was coming. Eventually, inspiration's process will present a servant whose ministry is going to be worldwide. At this point, those in the world that only had hope were those in Judah. And yet, by the time we get through with Isaiah, we're going to see, little by little, not only is Judah included, but the hope of the Gentile nations are also included in this. That thought was radical in Israel's understanding. How could they understand? You know, you talk about bias and prejudice. I, you couldn't find a greater example of that than in that nationalistic attitude that they held, especially in regard to the, the lineage, the blood lineage of Abraham. Well, that's not right. I don't care whatever the application is or the illustration. It's never right to be that bigoted in, in things. And, and Isaiah knew that. And God knew that. And so little by little, they're learning. And they're going to learn it's not the literal bloodline of Abraham that's going to bring salvation to you. It's going to be explained fully. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. There the Bible says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. The coming Messiah is going to present everything in a new perspective. Oh, don't you like new? You know, I love to smell a new car, don't you? With family kids, that smell's soon gone. It just isn't there. It's only a faint memory of what it used to be. But you love the new stuff. And here we have a new process. Everything else that's been tried hasn't worked. But now, here's a new process that God has given us. And I want us to turn our attention to Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 13, in the lesson this morning, and observe the incredible details that introduce this majestic Savior. And, and as we go through this, we'll find other references in Isaiah that will add uh, substantiation to it. But a new process is coming. First of all, this new process begins with a new thought. There's a shift in thought. Isaiah 42 verse 1 begins, Behold my servant. The word behold is imperative. It's urgent. This is something that you put an exclamation mark after. The emphasis begins to shift in the prophecy. And that shift in the emphasis is about to be revealed. It's revealed not to be the literal bloodline of Abraham, it's to be the servant. And as Galatians 3 will point out, all those that live by faith are children of Abraham. And so the Abrahamic promise and the covenant that was established in Genesis is fulfilled only by this Savior that comes. But God's purpose is going to be fulfilled. 
Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And, and so he goes on. This is the announcement. Behold, this is what is coming. This is the change. This is the shift. It's a shift from worldly strength and worldly supremacy is a shift from, from personal strength to a spiritual strength. It's a, it's a tremendous shift in our thinking of how things are to work on earth. This servant causes us to shift, to change the way that we're thinking. Many today need to consider this point because they fail to see the focus that Isaiah 42 and verse 1 is bringing. Their focus is not upon the servant. Their focus is upon themselves. And so they look to themselves for strength, for protection, for riches, for whatever they want. The wrong, the wrong shift, the wrong focus. Many today look beyond, uh, or they fail to look beyond the boundaries of this world. Colossians 3, 2, Paul says this, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above. Now look at that. Keep seeking. This is a continuous present action that you're to do. When you become a Christian, it's not over at that point. You're not on vacation. You're not on leave. You are beginning the greatest journey you'll ever... You keep seeking the things that are above. Why, Paul? Because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He said, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And this is what this servant was, was uh, portrayed to be in Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Many today fail to do this. Many congregations fail to do this. Incredible to think about. They began thinking about, well, we need to grow in numbers. You know, our numbers are diminishing. We need to do something. We've got to get numbers in here. And instead of seeking the things that are above, they began to seek the things of the world. And they become worldly instead of spiritual. And so their strength is based upon their physical abilities, not on the holiness of God. And guess what happens? Absolute abject failure is their destiny. Well, this servant encourages us to shift the focus. Shift it from the mundane to the magnificent. Shift it from the failed fleshly power to the supremacy of spiritual strength. You still have to live on earth. Don't, don't miss that point. But the way that you live on earth is tremendously different from the way that everybody else lives on earth. That's a significant point. God's solemn declaration here in Isaiah 42, 1 calls for man to change his focus. Focus on values that are not this world, but the values that are the other world. Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, He challenged people to change their thought patterns. He challenged His disciples to think with opportunism and to be prepared to take advantage of opportunities to teach God's truth. It's an interesting point to consider. You look back in the annals of carnal warfare, 
at how mankind used to wage war. And as we look back, we, we think, why in the world would they, I mean, they'd draw up and, and block columns and they'd point blank fire at one another. Why would you? That was the way, that was their thinking, that was their, their soldierly processed uh, mentality. Now that began to change. Uh, it, it began to change at the end of World War One. The Germans were uh, uh, key to that. And then it's continued changing today, thankfully. But today our, our soldiers are taught, you, you look for weapons of opportunity. Don't box yourself in to what you've always done and what you've always been taught. You look for opportunities to complete your mission. And those opportunities may not have been envisioned whenever you started. Jesus Christ encourages us in our spiritual warfare to think with opportunism and to be prepared to take advantage of any opportunity that comes about. John 4, remember the, the woman at the well? What an opportunity that was. And the disciples came to him afterwards amazed that he was speaking to this woman. And he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And then to clarify their confusion, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. How did he do that? He seized up. You are going to have opportunities every day in your fight of the Christian warfare to, to make advances for the Lord. Don't uh, limit yourself with what you've been trained that you ought to think and you ought to do. Here is the Bible. This is what you look at. This is your pattern. And that's, that is what you follow in your commands to God. Jesus challenged his, his disciples to think with urgency. He says, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest behold lift up your eyes the fields are white unto harvest that isn't limited just to the first century as soon as you leave these doors the fields are white unto harvest think with opportunities think with discernment john seven twenty four. jesus says do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment only a fool will say, well, you don't need to judge. Well, I don't want to be around that fellow. Do you want to ride in the car when he's driving? Do you want to walk alongside of him when he's going down the road? Do not judge according to our appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so the poignant announcement, behold, speaks to our culture today. This servant challenges us to shift our thinking in new directions. Change your thinking, Paul says. Renew your mind, Romans 12. Philippians 4, guard your mind to keep the things that are holy. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Bring every thought into captivity. See, if the devil can control our thoughts, and those in religious error, if the devil can say, well, now you know you've always been taught you've got to do this, but it's an error, it's contrary to what they will stay in that. Paul says we need to bring every thought into captivity in Christ Jesus. This servant Isaiah speaks about will present a new shift in thoughts. What holds the greatest thoughts 
in your mind? What consumes the majority of your free time? Those are questions I think that are significant. Do the worldly priorities in your life nudge and, and bump the spiritual priorities out of their rightful place so that at the end of the day you say, well, I should have done that. I know I should have done that, but I didn't. Well, <clears throat> I don't necessarily believe in New Year's resolutions. We ought to resolve every day that we live, but if you are one that, that puts down the list of New Year's resolutions, I hope that'll be one of those that this year you're going to resolve to, to make sure you seize the right priorities. But Jesus was coming to present not only a change in our thoughts, but also he was a new person in action. He would, Isaiah said, behold my servant, my servant. Now the Bible, the Bible identifies God utilizing man a number of times as being his servants. And they weren't just righteous men. Of course, you've got Noah, you've got uh, Moses, you've got David, but you also have Nebuchadnezzar and Isaiah 44 talks about Cyrus. And so God has a number of servants, and I believe he still does today. Because Daniel 2.20 says that God sets those kingdoms up and he brings them down. God is still involved. He's still using servants. But this one is different. Isaiah 42, 1 says, my servant. This identifies him as unique. Here is a new person with a critical role, and he is identified as my servant. Three critical facts are seen in this. Number one, he has a special relationship with God. He is mine. He belongs to God. He is associated with God. He has a close relationship, and God says, I will uphold him. He also affirms God's unique choice. My servant, he says, my chosen one. God chose him. And, and, and we don't have time to talk about it, but God has chosen each one of you. You have been chosen by God. Not in some foreordained, predestined, elect way, but you have been chosen by God to be a part of His church, His body, because you have obeyed the will of God. And in that process, the Bible says you have been ordained, chosen by God. And that's exactly the same point that we're finding here. But third point, this new servant will possess God's investment. The wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might of the knowledge and fear of Jehovah God. Isaiah 11 and verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now, endowed with that point, Isaiah this says this servant is going to bring judgment. Obviously, then, from this description, this servant is going to be far different from the historical figures. Not going to be like Nebuchadnezzar. Not going to be like Cyrus not going to be like Xerxes, not going to be like any of their other worldly empire rulers, but he's going to be far different. Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophetic description. Matthew 12, 18 through 21, he says in application to Christ, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul 
is well pleased. I will put my spirit in him, and so on. Well, this is the servant that Isaiah spoke about, and the point-blank message is it was Jesus Christ. The impact of Jesus upon the world is a fact that is admitted even by the strongest unbeliever. Everybody with any sense at all will admit that Jesus Christ has had a significant impact upon the world. And the amazing impact is result of Jesus Christ being this servant that fulfilled the predictive prophecy of Isaiah. No one is like Christ. Jesus Christ is the incomparable servant of God. Only Jesus Christ could fulfill these qualifications that were described by Isaiah as the prophet. Jesus Christ as a servant is more excellent than any person, process, or procedure that has ever been attempted to reunite man with God. And this is the basic premise of the epistle of the Hebrews, that Jesus is the better. He's better. He's better than Moses, better than angels, better than whatever you list. Jesus Christ is better. In Hebrews, 11, uh, Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it says that he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name. Hebrews 8, 6 says that he has a more excellent ministry. He is the mediator of better covenant that's enacted upon better promises. Christians should look at this servant. In fact, the whole world needs to look at this servant and recognize the superiority of Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you are not a Christian, how do you view this servant? Either you reject him and say he never existed, or you obey him and complacently and, and compromisingly obey his command, or you render full obedience and submission to his will. How do you view this? As a Christian, as a non-Christian, how do you view the superiority of Jesus Christ? Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, you have Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin. They've been called on the carpet because they've been teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. And there in that passage, as they're before the Sanhedrin, they say that there is no other name by which man can be saved. Only this servant. Isaiah's message announced that salvation is possible only by God's plan that is fulfilled by this servant. Isaiah 45, verse 22, there God says, Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the world, not just Judah, all the ends of the world. Isaiah 45, 22. You see how he has is, enlarged is the concept here. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the world are the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is an invitation that is extended today. The entire world can be saved. They just have to return to God. They have to, to find and, and that experience that divine compassion and receive the abundant pardon. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Who can seek Him? Everybody can seek Him. 
He's not hiding. Paul says he's not far away from those that that really want to search him in Acts 17. God is there. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And note the word near. Call on him while he's near. He's not always going to be there. God won't move, but you will. God remains where he is. That's the point we didn't get to in last Sunday morning's lesson, but God is constant. God never moves. But if you don't obey Him, you're going to move. And it's possible that even after obeying Him, you're going to move. So He says, call upon Him while He is near. Don't don't move away from Him. He says, let the wicked forsake His way. It doesn't say there, now you coddle the wicked and maybe by showing Him love and concern and non-judgmental fellowship, Maybe he'll, no, let the wicked forsake. There, there's no, no wiggle room in that at all. And the unrighteous man, let him forsake his thoughts. It's kind of like Isaiah would want to grab these people by the ears and just kind of shake them and said, have you bumped your head? Are you okay in there? Do you think you can go on doing these things and think that, that everything's all right. No, he says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return. You can't stay where you are. You can't continue doing what you're doing. And do not encourage somebody in doing that or you become just as they are. Romans 1, and the last verse points that out. You encourage them in their evil deeds. You are just as guilty as they are. Well, if I say something, they might get their feelings hurt. Maybe so, but it's better for you to say something and get their feelings hurt and then go to hell than you sit there and be quiet and you go to hell with them. Ezekiel 3 points that out. If you warn the wicked of his wicked way and he, he repents, you've gained a soul. But if you do not warn the wicked of his wicked way, you keep silent. He'll die in his wickedness, but his blood well, I require your hands. That's sobering, sobering thoughts. Well, let's go on. A new person in action, and then we find a new order in the covenant. He is going to establish his law. Isaiah 42 and verse 4, He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Now, it's interesting here that the servant is not going to use his voice to establish his Authority, 42 and verse 2, he will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. The message of God is a subtle leavening that takes place. Certainly it will be heralded. It will be proclaimed. But the power is found in the the effect that it has. Meekness and, and humility is to characterize the truth. The dramatic contrast between the old and the new order is, is stated here. In verses 2 and 3. In fact, there are five negative verbs that are found here in these verses. Cry out, nor raise his voice, nor make heard, not break, nor extinguish. This is characterizing the message. God's message is going to be proclaimed in a very positive way. And this new order is going to be marked with humility instead of arrogance. The first priority of the new covenant is going to be that of justice. 
The servant will have a successful mission because he perseveres. He brings a new law. And this new law governs the, the new order that God has planned. And this new law is the only basis for redemption and reconciliation. It's the only law that binds us together in fellowship with one another. And this new law is going to be characterized by these traits. First of all, it'll have a trait of energy. A new energy is going to empower them with God's power. Look in Isaiah 42 and 5. It says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those that walk in it. God's power is the message. It is that which propels the message. And this message is going to be instituted by the Messiah. The kingdom that is established by the divine power and divine wisdom is that message that comes with the power of God. We, there's a number of, of passages. In fact, if you have studied dispensational premillennial theory, that's the, the thousand-year reign of Christ or the, you know, the restoration of Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem and national Jerusalem, where they think everything's going back uh, then you'll, you'll appreciate these comments. The kingdom has been established. It's not will be, it has been. It was established in the past, it exists in the present, and it will be delivered up to the Lord in the future. It's not waiting to be established in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Well, this kingdom, Joel 2 speaks about it. Mark 9, 1 says the kingdom will come with power. That power is seen in the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Romans 8 talks about our being participants in that kingdom. So the servant is bringing a kingdom with a new energy. It's empowered with the power of God. And this new order is going to stress righteousness. It's a righteousness of God. Righteousness means doing that which is right and just. Well, in order to know what's right and just, you've got to have a standard, don't you? How will you determine what's right and what's wrong? You've got to have a standard. God's righteousness is that which is determined right and wrong by looking at God's law. And the standard for godly righteousness is God himself. Now, the Bible speaks about a righteousness of man, a righteousness of God. What's the difference? It's the law. The righteousness of man establishes right and wrong by man's standard. But the servant is coming to establish the righteousness of God by God. No more rituals, lip service, hypocrisy. When the servant performs his duties, he'll be de demonstrating the righteousness of God. And this conduct of the servant will be imitated by us. Those that are following the servant. Listen, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The servant, Isaiah speaks about, will be known by his righteousness. All that is done, the love and salvation for those that trust and obey, are the wrath and eternal punishment for those that scoff and rebel, is the righteousness of God. So don't coddle yourself if you're not following God's will and say, well, I'm sincere, I'm honest, I'm 
I'm doing the best I can. No, that doesn't get it done. It won't work. You've got to follow the will of God. Those serving under God's new order will seek the righteousness that the servant did. How do we know that? How do we know what the righteousness of God? Look at, at Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Think about that. Are you ashamed to tell somebody, well, what you're doing is wrong? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the righteousness of God. And we need to be emboldened by that as well. The motivation of obedience is to be acknowledged as righteous before God. Romans 6 talks about our being a servant or slaves of righteousness. This righteousness is so controlling that it limits and restricts the Christian's conduct and activities. 2 Corinthians 6 that uh, Brother Melvin discussed. We are not to be bound together with unbelievers. And Paul says, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? How, how can you reconcile that? How can you as a person that wants to follow the righteousness of God join yourself to someone that is following the righteousness of man? You can't do it. It, it doesn't work. It's spoiled. You just can't, you can't work in, in that way. Well, more to be said. He's going to establish a new covenant. A new covenant is going to be established, Isaiah 42, in the latter part of verse 6, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. This new order is not the modification of the old. Christians are not following the law of Moses that's been revised. Nope. No, you're not. You're following a new order, a new covenant, and this prophet is going to do this and bring that out. It is totally wrong to say that we in the New Testament are just a revision of the Old Testament. Not correct at all. Not by a long shot. Please don't say that. This servant will introduce a new covenant. And this new order is governed by the new covenant that brings awesome blessings. You'll find freedom, joy, relief, and hope. You'll find blessings anticipated and blessings delivered. How tragic Satan's lies that cause others to believe and think that they can accept the new order of this servant without submitting to the new covenant's law. Just won't work. Well, let's look further. This uh, new order will, will prevent uh, present a revelation of new things that will occur. Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9, there the, it says, I declare new things. A new order is to be initiated by the servant, but it's founded upon the absoluteness of Jehovah God. The work is not going to be trusted to another. And in fact, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to the other, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 42 in the first part of verse 8 speaks that. God is jealous and exclusive in regard to His worship, in regard to those that serve Him, in regard to the scheme of redemption by which salvation... God is a jealous God. He is an exclusive God. Just offering a praise to an idol instead of God is blasphemous. 
but equally blasphemous are those that claim, I'm going to obey Christ and I'm going to obey God, and they begin to follow their own way. It will not work. They are deluded, they're deceived, and there remains no more sacrifice for their sin because they have blasphemed God. They've turned away from Him. Escape is possible only by one being righteous in the eyes of God by following the righteousness revealed in the gospel. And the process of righteousness is clearly defined, it's jealously guarded, and Isaiah tells us. Now, God is intolerant of anyone changing this divine process. Don't change what God has said so clearly. God is not tolerant of other faith responses or however else modern culture describes it. God jealously guards the pattern announced by the prophets, inaugurated by the Lord, and followed by the apostles. Matthew 10, 34. The servant's work was not to make peace, but to start a war. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow. That's amazing. Why is he going to start a war? Because there's folks that will not follow the righteousness of God. God declared that the conflict is going to come. If you don't love him more than you love others, you're not a part of him. And if you're not willing to, if you're ashamed of the gospel and unwilling to speak up of the righteousness of God, and you keep silent, you're not a part of God. It's a message that the servant tells us. A new song. I love this point. A new song is going to come, and the song celebrates the invincibility of God's pattern. Um, after this song, nothing is going to remain the same. I wish we had time to talk about everything's going to change. The new song says everything is going to change. Isaiah 11 verses, uh, starting with, uh, with verse 6, says the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down, the young. It's talking here. You know, you read about those that speak of the peaceable kingdom. And they want to make it on earth. But that's not. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the reversal of things that it seems impossible. And here he says, God can make the impossible very possible. And he says, that is what this servant is going to do. And uh, instead of uh, being a carnivore, they're going to they're eat herbs. Well, that's physically impossible. They're not created like that. But that's not the point. The point is, God can make the impossible very possible in our lives. Uh, Isaiah... All right, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. What a wonderful blessing. All right, the, uh, the servant refined. God's revelation came slowly. The songs, we'll pick up here next week, talk about the songs. Going back to Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, in no other name but Jesus Christ. All right, we're done. Thank you.